Hello, and welcome to another delightful episode of Heavy Metal 101. I feel like it has been so many moons since we've had a nice, normal episode. Have you felt the yearning deep within your gut for this return to normalcy? Is this normal? This is as normal as it's going to get, ever. Just two bearded white dudes sitting in a dark room talking about music as normal? On my birthday, no On less. your birthday! Oh and my that's, gosh. That's really why we're here. It's like, uh, all right, I can't put it off any longer. <laughs> Happy birthday, Eric. Let's talk about whatever it is we're talking about today. John is giving me the greatest gift of all. <laughs> A gift of kiss. It's been a little while since we've done any of this, so we're going to give the nice people a brief reminder of just who we are. My name is Eric. I am a university music professor and a professional composer and pianist of the classical persuasion. I'm also a huge, lifelong heavy metal nerd, and this was my first musical love. In this particular podcast, I take my belligerent young friend, John, a heavy metal novice, on a fantastical tour through the darkly terrifying annals of heavy metal history. It's darkly terrifying, is it not? I am terrified. John shivers a lot during these episodes. It's really quite something to see. John, could you remind our listeners of just how hideously unqualified you are to be participating in this very podcast? Yeah, that is not an inaccurate description. I don't know anything about heavy metal outside of what you have endeavored to teach me over the last, what, five, four, how many episodes? Seems like 26 at this point. So, you know, I don't know anything about this. I am a musician, but my background is entirely classical. I am presently wrapping up grad school, getting a doctorate in orchestral conducting. Writing big old dissertations, Writing big old dissertations, editing big old dissertations, mostly at this point. And surprisingly, none of my musical studies have involved heavy metal. I come at this with no knowledge whatsoever. Good, good. Well, we're glad to have you here, John. So, for reasons that should be abundantly obvious, we've spent most of our time to date discussing music on this heavy metal podcast. It's what we do here. However, we do need to take a little bit of time out to acknowledge the fact that heavy metal is quite nearly as much a visual medium as it is an audio medium. It isn't a coincidence that the golden age of heavy metal coincided with the development of the music video and the rise of MTV in the 1980s. I am, like you, John, a theater kid at heart, and that's one of the reasons that I've always found heavy metal so much more interesting than almost any other form of popular music. It's the showmanship. Yes, the music is supreme, but the aesthetic look of the fans and the artists, and most particularly the highly theatrical stage shows associated with the live concert experience in heavy metal, do merit some amount of time and consideration. So we're also going to generate perhaps a little touch of controversy in this episode because we're going to be investigating the importance of visuals in heavy metal by looking at a subgenre known as shock rock and particularly at two artists that many metalheads don't actually consider to be heavy metal at all, Alice Cooper and Kiss. John, I think you had some questions about whether or not they were heavy metal, no? Well, I mean, in doing my assigned listening, it sure didn't sound like heavy metal to me. <laughs> it's a bit of a different beast. I, well, well, we'll talk about how to characterize this music and these artists in a little bit. I've got pretty strong feelings on it myself, 
And it's probably important for me to note that when I was a kid, like a heavy metal young teenager, these were literally my two favorite bands. Kiss was my favorite band, and Alice Cooper was my second favorite band. So I do definitely have a personal bias in these discussions, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Before we talk about the concert experience, we're going to have a brief discussion on the look of the people who are participating in the heavy metal concert, namely the fans and the artists. So, John, I think we can both agree that you are pretty damn lame, right? I mean, conventionally speaking, I can't argue with that. Yeah, good. I happen to know for a fact that you have known at least a few metalheads, a few metal fans in your life. And so if you were to imagine in your mind's eye the typical metalhead, what do you think that person would look like? Can you describe them to me? Would you like me to describe them now or in their prime? <laughs> I think that's probably that's probably the uh, the question at play here. I mean, if we're talking about me, I suppose you'd probably assume that all heavy metal heads are uh, portly and balding and professorial and wear flip flops at inappropriate times, right? The reality is I do know more than one heavy metal fan, and that does pretty accurately describe all of them that I know. But that is not the image that necessarily comes to my mind when you say heavy metal fan. I picture maybe kind of long hair, not dirty, but perhaps relatively unkempt. Probably wearing a t-shirt that at its core is black, but maybe has some sort of a graphic design or band name on it. And, you know, jeans. Yeah, jeans. Definitely yeah. jeans. Probably ripped jeans. Probably, but I mean, whose jeans aren't at this point? Yeah, it's a good point. My jeans are all ripped and I'm 45, so... <laughs> So we're going to step into a time machine. I hate to be too terribly nostalgic, but we are going to take a look at the Eric of circa 1990. I was about 14 at that point. So <clears throat> here's what I looked like then. I had long curly hair that was well past my shoulders. The visual look I was going for that I actually told my hairstylist, showed her a picture of, was Paul Stanley of Kiss, in fact. Also, perhaps Marty Friedman from Megadeth, who also had big, long, dark, curly hair. Not Brian May. No, I wasn't really into Queen at the time, but but yeah, I mean, again, <laughs> per, that's a good that's a good person to uh, think of as well. I would invariably would be wearing, as you said, a black T-shirt covered with some sort of quasi gothic imagery and the mandatory heavy metal band logo. For purposes of this discussion, we'll say Iron Maiden, because I had a really cool Made in England t-shirt I used to wear a lot. I would have had some amount of darkly mystical jewelry on. It was meant to be intimidating, not like effeminate. I had a skull necklace that I called Larry that was probably my favorite thing that my high school girlfriend eventually went on to lose, and I hate her forever for that. And then I would probably be wearing an earring. Uh, one of my favorites was like a clawed, metallic, I think it was pewter hand, grabbing like a multicolored crystal ball. So that kind of thing. As you mentioned, I definitely would have been wearing jeans. They might have been blue. They might have been black. And then cowboy boots on my feet. Oh. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that just you or is that traditional footwear for the I would fan? say that that's one of the traditions. It really depends on the subgenre of choice. I was primarily a glam metal type and cowboy boots were kind of de rigueur for that. If I had been more of a thrash metal guy, it probably would have been like tennis shoes of some kind. Black did tennis not, shoes. Did not anticipate de rigueur making an appearance <laughs> in this podcast. You episode. never know. For, for all of you playing bingo along at home. <laughs> de rigueur. <laughs> There's your French for the day. 
I didn't have any tattoos, of course, because I was flipping 14 years old, but if you replace me with an older metalhead, for instance, my older brother, you would probably have seen somebody who was also showing off a number of heavy metal or horror movie-themed tattoos in various places. Additionally, I was never really a leather and studs type of guy. Mm, but that's look, though. Yeah, that's another look that was very popular and still is in some circles. Also, the battle vest, uh, sort of a jean vest with patches, various bands and stuff. These are other optional looks. Question, John, do you think I should start dressing like this again? Would that be, like, appropriate? I can't see how that would really impact your students' opinion of you at all as it already stands so if you want to start wearing studded leather jackets eric i think you should i think it's a great thing that i have that sort of flexibility in my life that i think i agree i could probably pull it off with almost no change in uh, the external circumstances (laughs) of my life okay so what we've just discussed is an example of a fan look but but this look wasn't really terribly different from the look of many of the heavy metal artists at that same time i mean Let's face it, they were obviously generally better looking, but just better looking, more extreme versions of the same thing that I've described. Now, this does, as with the fans, depend a lot on the subgenre. For instance, in glam metal, while the fans probably looked more or less like I described, in general, the artists had a real propensity for makeup and spandex. Something that never really took off quite as much amongst the fans, but looks great on stage. It's very theatrical. Where is it that this fan and artist look that I just went over came from? I mean, it now seems obvious that metalheads would have long hair and wear leather, but why is that so? John, where do you think that these images sort of got their start? Well, let's point to the original long hairs. How about the counterculture movement from the, uh, you know, that decade that I was definitely not alive in? See, everybody says you're dumb. But I think you're actually sort of dumb. Like, only oh, at most. Thank you. At most. Let's no, hope you... I get that vote of support from my committee. I'm going to send, if you need a letter of recommendation. Thank you. John is at worst sort of dumb. No, you're exactly right. It really is the counterculture. So I'm going to show you a picture. We've already established that Black Sabbath were the fathers of heavy metal, right? These are our founding fathers. So here's a look at them, circa 1972. I want you to describe what you see. Wow. Those look like a bunch of hippies. Right? They totally look like a bunch of stinky hippies. There are two just, I mean, words cannot possibly describe the mustaches that I am looking at right now. (laughs) They are gorgeous mustaches. I will set aside the basically mullet on one of these gentlemen, but I mean... That's the great Tony Iommi. Tony Iommi is, is just... I mean, dead in the eyes, but he's, he's I'm going to say, rocking a mullet. Mm-hmm. Wow, the shirts. Those are hippie shirts, even with the fringe mm-hmm. and the, like, fringe, the, the, yeah. the poofy sleeves. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of crosses. Yeah, right? Is it, that's a good observation. They're not inverted crosses. Those no, are just big just, old crosses. Just traditional crosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprisingly light pants colors. We appear to have white and khaki pants. Right. Would, I mean, so this image is basically, it's kind of sepia, black and white, but, but most of the coloration is white. I mean, most of what they're wearing, there's some darker fringe jackets on Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler, but generally speaking, a lot of white, a lot of beige. Yeah. I think you'll agree with me. These could very well be like late 60s, early 70s rock stars, but this is not the image one thinks of as like a heavy metal look, right? Yeah, I will agree with the second part of that statement, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, the simple truth, as John correctly identified, is that heavy metal always has had one foot in the world of the 1960s counterculture. We gotta remember that Black Sabbath was originally called Earth, 
which mm. is not a very frightening name. And they formed in 1968. I mean, this is in the middle of all of that. So while they may have musically gone off in a very different direction than a lot of the psychedelic or acid rock bands or hard rock bands of the time, heavy metal deriving from Black Sabbath gets its long hair and its early look directly from the hippies of the 1960s. Now, we're going to take a look at two more images. This here is Judas Priest in 1974. Is that a bathrobe? <laughs> we got some loose-fitting, very colorful shirts. We got bell-bottoms. Yeah, we Definitely. sure do. We got bell-bottoms. We have jeans now, but they look pretty clean and possibly ironed. Yeah, yeah, definitely like 70s teenager. Uh, we still have the long hair. Right, long hair uh, is looks, still there. Looks as though it may have been ironed. <laughs> um, I see a hat that you can't quite call a cowboy hat, but also isn't a fedora. Uh -huh. I don't know what you would call that. I would call it a band that does not intrinsically look like a heavy metal band. No, they're definitely not giving off heavy metal vibes. Yeah, so this is the Rockarola era Judas Priest. This is from a live performance during that time. And at this point, Judas Priest, I, I would say more or less, they have their own slight derivation of it, but look like Black Sabbath. I mean, really, it's like the same sort of hippie-ish, maybe a little later in the 70s kind of look. There's nothing... All right. I mean, hard, hard, they look like a generic hard rock band. Nothing to really visually separate them. Now, we're going to flash forward just a few years. This was Rockarola era Ju Judas Priest in 1974. Now we're going to look at Hellbent for Leather, Judas Priest in 1979. Wow, that's... <laughs> that's a heavy fucking metal band is what that is. There were some choices made here. Uh, <laughs> what do you see? Wow, I see a lot more skin than I want to if I'm, if I'm totally honest. A lot of man skin, yeah. that is true. Which, you know, like, got nothing against man skin. It just, they make it way more uncomfortable than it needs to be. <laughs> so leather, they were true to their... They were hell-bent for leather. Yeah, they were, they were true to... We got leather pants, we got leather tops, we got leather jackets. We see studs now. Mm -hmm. A lot uh, of studs. We see it's just like kind of random chains going on yeah. on this guy in the front. A lot of chains. Uh, no one is smiling. Yeah, good. They uh, look tough. I think the important thing here is still long hair and leather. Yeah, a lot of leather. Now, I guess my question is, does this look like a heavy metal band? Sure, yeah. I'd, I'd buy that. Yeah. So we talked about Judas Priest, of course, as a really essential force in the codification of heavy metal over the course of the 1970s. And with this uh, sort of disparity in two Judas Priest images, we can see a lot of that. Going from a hard rock band to something else. Something that just visually and, as we already discussed, musically is genuinely separating itself from the pack of quote-unquote hard rock, into that harder rock that we've identified as heavy metal. Now, this shows that not only is one foot of heavy metal in the 1960s hippie counterculture, but the other foot is actually in that sort of 1960s Hells Angels biker culture. Mm. So that's something that gives heavy metal a little bit more of its visual edge. Now, you pointed out the man skin, and I don't think it can be overlooked that the way in which Rob Halford specifically developed this metal leather look was his experiences in the gay S&M scene of 1970s London. To sum up, what we have here with heavy metal is one part hippie, one part hell's angel, and just a sous-son of homosexual 1970s London S&M. That is awesome. I absolutely adore that. So 
The visual aesthetics in heavy metal are about far more than outfits, and that's why we regularly spend a bit of time on this podcast discussing album covers, which is a totally important part of the overall aesthetic experience of a heavy metal album, what the album was designed to look like. Additionally, it's also about theatricality and fully immersive, transcendent live concert experiences. For heavy metal fans, the live show is one of life's peak experiences. It's a communal bonding, immersive theater, and extraordinary music making all rolled up into one perfect package. It also establishes fan artist dynamics, where the performers take on these near superhuman statures in the eyes of the fans. Frankly, the whole thing is a lot like what an incredibly religious person might experience during a transcendent worship experience at their church. Heavy metal concert is for the fan church. So where does all that come from? Heavy metal has a streak of gothic theatricality that is a mile wide. It is one of the genre's most endearing traits. And while the sound may have been developed by English artists that we've discussed, like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest, the theater comes courtesy of the good old U.S. of A. and is inherited from a hard rock subgenre that we often refer to as shock rock. Now, let's pause and we're going to hear some music before we explore a bit of the history of shock rock and its relationship with heavy metal. I think we need some sounds in our ears. We need to feel like we're at this live concert experience. We're going to listen to the opening track, Deuce, off of the seminal live album of the early 1970s, Alive, by one of my all-time favorite bands, Kiss. Before we press play, we're gonna transport ourselves into the live concert experience via a little thought experiment. Okay, so you're in a crowded arena, it's absolutely buzzing with anticipation. The stage in front of you is framed with mammoth wall-to-wall amplifiers. Nearly everything else on the stage is still obscured by curtains and coverings, but you just know that they are hiding all sorts of cool gadgets and gizmos underneath. The background music is rocking loudly with familiar tunes. Everyone around you is utterly euphoric and ready for the time of their lives. Suddenly, the background music stops and the lights go down. As one, the audience rises, screaming in pure, delirious joy. You can see the shadows of movement from the stage, and you know that your beloved heroes have finally arrived. And then you hear this. So if you are listening to this right now, you are listening to one of the versions of this podcast in which we unfortunately do not have the rights to play this wonderful piece of music, Deuce, specifically the version from Alive, of course by Kiss. In your show notes you can find a link to take you directly to a recording and you too can immerse yourself in the glory of KISS. Or you can totally ignore it and just listen to us continue to yammer on afterwards. It is your choice. And now, back to the podcast. Now that was just so awesome. John and I actually, instead of listening to just the audio version, we looked up a fun video on YouTube that was actually a sort of montage of live performances in the early 70s. And John, I think you'll agree that was pretty damn cool. Well, it was better than just listening to it. I'll give you that. <laughs> John was riveted. I think he might have cried. Did you cry? I didn't bit? cry, no. You should have. You should have cried for all the kiss shows you've missed at this point in your life. It's a terrible tragedy. I mean, literally everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is so damn good. And the amazing thing about Kiss Alive is what a great job it does at putting you, the listener, 
right in the center of the arena at a KISS show. You've got the roar of the crowd, the explosions of the cannons, that heavier, more visceral sound of the musical performance live than what was ever heard on any of the three previous studio albums. Alive is a magnificent audio document of the live KISS experience, beautifully produced by the great Eddie Kramer. John and I were talking about this, and I think an important bit of context to understand is that this album is meant to be almost a, a, a souvenir. It's meant to evoke for the fans that loved KISS Live but hadn't at that point gotten into their albums. It's supposed to remind them and evoke the amazing concert experience that is KISS Live. So John, I'm sure you were just swimming with thoughts and confusion and chaos in your mind after hearing this album and this opening track and seeing that video that we watched of the live performance. But what, what do you think? What do you think about Deuce and Alive and what you've uh, heard of KISS today? Well, I mean, definitely it needs the visuals in my mind. Like, you know, the music isn't bad. It's not like it's not good, mm -hmm. but it's not terribly interesting. It's not really very complicated. It's pretty standard progressions, kind of you know, traditional sounds for this genre. I mean, you know. It's, you know, there can be no question, but the kiss is more potent as a package deal with the look and the the characters and the music and all of that stuff working together and that and then again that's why they created alive because that does a much better job of simulating or drawing us towards what kiss is all about than just the traditional studio album i absolutely love kiss albums you know I, i've spent basically my entire life at least from probably age 12 or so listening to people who talk trash about kiss i mean musicians non-musicians uh many people have trouble taking them seriously and you know some people knock them as not heavy enough some people knock them as incompetent musicians but gosh damn it i absolutely love every single classic kiss album from the self-titled debut of 1974 all the way up through 1980's Unmasked, which is possibly my favorite Kiss album. Certainly it's one of them. I just think that they're a fantastic band, but I do understand that there is something to be said for the marriage of the visuals and the music together being a more powerful experience, which is why we're talking about them in this particular context, the shock rock visual kind. So, I think Alive, of course, is a masterpiece. I mean, it is a hugely important live album, not just in Kiss's career, but across the 1970s. Pretty much everything on this album just kicks ass, except maybe Peter Chris's drum solo. As we talked about, that's a bit of a low. And actually, while I'm knocking on Peter Chris, I will also say that of all of the classic Kiss albums, I even love all of their solo albums, which they released in 1978. Each one of them did a solo album, except for Peter Chris's, which I absolutely hate. It's absolutely just terrible. You mean the drummer's solo album didn't hold up? It does not. It does not hold up to me. It sounds like, I don't know, like schmaltzy 1970s light rock. It's it's pretty horrifying. But I, I mean, all the other solo albums I think are great, particularly Paul's and Ace's are truly amazing. Jeans is just weird. You know, he covers When You Wish Upon a Star on his solo album. That's a with, curious choice. With full orchestra. 
All right. Yeah, yeah. They're really, really great things. And, and also, there are four Alive albums, ranging from this first one in 1975 through Alive 4, which came out in 2003. All of those are great. And actually, I've got a particular soft spot for Alive 4, in which they performed collaboratively with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. So it's KISS Live in Australia it, with the band playing simultaneous to orchestrations. It's great. I think it's beautifully done and it's tons of fun. And there's videos of it too and the whole, the whole orchestra is painted in KISS makeup. It's like... Oh, they did not get paid enough for that. <laughs> I have no idea how much they were paid, but it was not enough for that. I have a close friend who's in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and she unfortunately was not in the orchestra for that experience. But she says it sounded like tons of fun. So, I'll shut up about KISS for a minute. We will get back to them soon, I promise. But first, let's try and figure out how and why the concert experience is so central to the heavy metal experience, even more so, often, than the albums themselves. And particularly why there's so much epic theatricality in this otherwise, you know, sort of tough, rough-and-tumble musical genre. So let's talk shock rock. John, do you have any idea what shock rock is? Uh, No. Okay. I'll just save us some time and say no. I appreciate that. I mean, look, it's kind of, as, as genre goes, it's pretty loosey-goosey. I would say it's more of a visual, conceptual designation than it is a, a musical designation. I don't think there's that much musical commonality from one artist to the next. But like most good things in American vernacular music, shock rock has its origins in 1950s African-American popular music, and particularly in the gothic theatricality of the late, great Screamin' Jay Hawkins. John, are you familiar with the 1956 hit, I Put a Spell on You? I am. Oh. I do actually know that song. Right? It's an amazing song and also a fabulous, fabulous vocal by Hawkins. I totally love that song. And Scream Jay Hawkins had a great voice. But he was also among the earliest rock and roll artists that really began to incorporate a sort of sinister theatricality into his performances. So amongst other things, he would begin by emerging from a coffin. He had a propensity to wear these gothic sort of Dracula capes in performance, and, like my hero, King Diamond, a couple decades later, used a skull-shaped microphone. Ooh, shocking. John is shocked. He's shocked by this. Ooh. So Hawkins is one of the first, but we're going to fast forward a bit to the year of our Lord, 1969, and talk about one of my personal heroes, a profound influence on so much very wonderful heavy metal music, shock rocker par excellence, Alice Cooper. So John, what do you know about Alice Cooper? Uh, Alice Cooper, famous for his small cameo in Wayne's World. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Quite possibly the first time I saw him. <laughs> no, I was actually a pretty big Alice Cooper fan by the time Wayne's World came out, but it wasn't that long before that. Yeah, no, I mean, Al Alice Cooper, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe Alice Cooper's shows are actually structured in a way where there's kind of a story and a plot through them they where he is sometimes, the yeah. villain. Yes, Alice Cooper is definitely a character, and Alice Cooper is definitely the villain. That is true. And Alice Cooper, in over the course of those shows, some of which are more sort of theatrical and elaborate, and some of which are, are less so, he gets his comeuppance mm -hmm. during the show, something we'll actually take a look at. Now, this is something that evolves a little bit later, I think, in Alice Cooper's career. But, yeah, I mean, it's a very... Talk about theatricality. I mean, this is like showbiz and mm -hmm. Broadway-style musical theater production uh, numbers and, and whatnot. So... 
Let's establish just a couple of fast facts about this seminal band and later solo artist. So we've got to tackle the elephant in the room. When the band Alice Cooper released their 1969 debut album, The Extremely Wacky Pretties For You, there wasn't a person named Alice Cooper in the band. They did have a darkly charismatic lead singer by the name of Vincent Fernier. Although over the course of the early Alice Cooper band career, Fernier definitely began to become first confused with and then really, in truth, the character of Alice Cooper. It wasn't actually until 1975 when the original band had then broken up and the solo artist that we now know and love as Alice Cooper was truly born and, and actually legally changed his name. The classic original Alice Cooper band lineup consisted of Glenn Buxton, rest in peace, on the lead guitar, Michael Bruce on the rhythm guitar, Dennis Dunaway on bass, and Neil Smith on drums. And along with Vincent Fernier, I mean, these guys were basically high school friends from Arizona that became just super freak weirdos in the Los Angeles of the late 1960s. Buxton was best friends with Jim Morrison. Uh, you know, they were just hanging out right in the center of all of the craziness of 1960s Los Angeles. So it's through this, through their location and overall wackiness, that they came to the attention of one of my most beloved musical heroes who is not a heavy metal artist, Frank Zappa. And it was Zappa who originally signed the Alice Cooper Band to his Straight Records label. Now, I know that from the vantage point of 2021, there doesn't seem to be anything really obviously in common musically between Zappa and Alice Cooper. But if you go back and listen to those first two Alice Cooper albums, Praise For You and Easy Action, you'll find that Alice Cooper was really more of a psychedelic acid rock band that at the time sounded a lot more like Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, or maybe Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd, than they did like Black Sabbath or any of these early heavy metal bands. It really wasn't until the band paired up with the producer Bob Ezrin and made 1971's third album, Love It to Death, that they really broke big in popular culture and also established the classic sort of anthemic hard rock sound that we associate with Alice Cooper. This, of course, begs that question that is bound to come up with Kiss or a, a lot of these bands, which is, was Alice Cooper a heavy metal band? My answer to this is sometimes. The first albums all vary really widely in their sonic palette. I mean, some of the songs are Sabbath-esque heavy metal. Some of them sound like, well, you know, they quote Bernstein's West Side Story at one point. I mean, I mean some heavy metal. Yeah, that's some damn heavy metal music. I mean, Alice Cooper was probably too weird and wide-ranging a band to be categorized as quote-unquote purely heavy metal. But the dark, elaborate stage show, and particularly the larger-than-life onstage persona of the singer who we now know as Alice Cooper, most definitely laid the groundwork for nearly all of the heavy metal artists that would follow in their wake. This is so true, in fact, that after some rather fallow times in the early 1980s when Alice Cooper was making new wave albums that he doesn't actually remember making because he was so drunk and coked up, hey. yeah, when he staged a very successful mid-1980s commercial comeback, Alice Cooper very purposefully situated himself unabashedly amidst the heavy metal of the time. He had this Rambo-esque, utterly ripped guitarist named Kane Roberts, who used a guitar that was shaped like a machine gun, and it had a strap that was an ammo belt, 
and he released just an assortment of fantastic heavy metal albums, like, for instance, 1987's Raise Your Fist and Yell. These are definitely metal times for Alice Cooper. Uh, also, a fun fact is that the bass player on Raise Your Fist and Yell is this handsome, talented young fellow by the name of Kip Winger. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Winger would go on to found the popular, but also kind of much loathed glam metal band Winger. But Kip also would go on much, much later to have an album, Conversations with Nijinsky, that was nominated for Best Classical Contemporary Composition in the 2017 Grammys. Wow. Yeah. You weren't expecting that, were you? Uh, I was not expecting a Nijinsky reference mm -hmm. in today's Kiss and Alice Cooper <laughs> podcast, which, which now makes, I think, the third or fourth time so far in this episode that I have just been completely unprepared for what we're going to talk about. It's an emotional roller coaster is what it is. I, I, you know, I bet Nijinsky would have liked metal. <laughs> I could see him being into mm -hmm. that. I could see that as well. I could definitely see that, doing those big jumps to power chords. I mean, it'd be beautiful. <laughs> so it also should be noted that the 80s period of Alice Cooper that I'm referring to was also the time that I first discovered him. And so to me, you know, uh, subject to my own biases, Alice Cooper is always going to be a heavy metal artist. It's just the category in which I met him. Um, the same actually holds true for Kiss. These are both bands that maybe in the 70s were more hard rock than quote-unquote heavy metal. But when I first came across them in the 80s, they were definitely in the very beating heart of heavy metal. So regardless, even the very early Alice Cooper live show it definitely sets down much of the blueprint for the highly theatrical live heavy metal albums and concerts to come. I mean, in 1969, this is a dude who threw a live chicken into the audience at his concert, and the audience then proceeded to tear it to pieces. Which is, I know, a bit horrifying, but how heavy metal is that? Why? <laughs> Why would they do that? <laughs> so, look... I like chickens. I'm often a vegetarian, right? I mean, I am not advocating for the tearing apart of live chickens. I think it's grotesque, most definitely. But, you know, Alice Cooper was probably quite drunk at the time, and his explanation was he, he somebody threw a chicken onto the stage. What? How did a chicken right? get into the venue? How indeed? How indeed is really a question. They threw it onto the stage. Alice Cooper saw it, and he thought, this will be cool. I'm going to throw it, and it's going to fly away. It's a big, beautiful chicken, because he didn't know that chickens couldn't fly. Right. And instead, it landed in the audience. And okay. those animals... Which is fine. This is the, the, it's the <laughs> next part of the story that I don't understand. I don't really... Hey, I have never ripped apart a live animal at any heavy metal concert show I've been to. But again, it's pretty damn metal. Okay, so we're going to try something new here. This is a brand new Heavy Metal 101 segment, which we will quickly discontinue if John sucks at it. So, <laughs> Thank you for putting it solely on my shoulders. Yes. Knowing that what we're about to do... Mm -hmm is discuss a video mm -hmm. in an audio medium. You're going to use the beautiful potency of your voice and language to make us feel as if we are staring at it with you. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a short video that features Alice Cooper live in 1971. I want you to use your elegant descriptive verbal gifts to tell our listening audience what it is you happen to see on that screen. Cueing video. Okay. Oh, there's a snake. Uh-huh. Okay, wow. so there's a stage there's prop. There's a live snake. Wow, he is, not, is he Ooh. wearing chaps? Did he just throw a baby? What the hell? Is that an axe? <laughs> chopping is up. he chopping up a 
baby doll? He's chopping up a baby doll. What in the... Oh, my God. Oh, my, oh it's bleeding. It's got fake blood in it. That's Oof. disturbing. Why is he crawling around? What is he... He's just grabbing it by the hair. Mm -hmm. He seems very exhausted. Oh, but the audience is just smiling. Oh, but look what's happening. Oh, okay. He appears to be being dragged by someone in a hangman's outfit carrying a lit torch. This seems very unsafe. I'm not going to lie. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Oh, uh, he was wiping the blood off of his mouth. He looks pretty indignant. Villainous, I would say. Yeah. Oh, oh, they put a noose around his neck. Uh -huh. That's not great. He looks uh, generally nonplussed. Mm -hmm. um, okay, this is taking a minute. I'm guessing they're double-checking the safety rigging so that he doesn't actually die. Oh, there's a person playing a military drum. Yeah, right? It's How like, delightful. It's like an execution. More torches. The hang. There's there's a hangman part two that is wearing some very strange leather clothing. Purple leather. And yeah. Tape, I think. Oh, everyone's just kind of... I don't think that was at this moment. Ooh. There was an audience shot. Uh-oh. Oh! They dropped him half an inch, and now he's pretending to be dead. He's dead! Oh, Lightning! Lightning! Oh, no! Oh. Oh, look at that. That's the pale, dead face of the villainous Alice Cooper. That's, I mean, you, that's a pretty extravagant live show, right? I mean, obviously. It's very theatrical. Yeah. It, yeah. it is. There was very little that seemed to have to do with music mm -hmm. in that clip from a musical show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, the music is important. I mean, I'm not one of those people. Like I said, with Kiss, I love Kiss's music, but I'm still very much, I understand that a lot of what draws people to Kiss or Alice Cooper is this visual Is the thing. cat makeup. Yeah, the cat makeup is king. The cat makeup is king. That was beautifully done. I felt like I was there with Alice Cooper getting hung in 1971. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was actually kind of traumatizing. I feel dirty. Do we, do we need to put a trigger warning? Yeah, we should put a trigger <laughs> warning. Oh my gosh. So the music here, you heard in the background, is excerpted from the song Killer, which is from the 1971 album of the same name. And like that meandering organ crawl with the Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like the That's middle. from a song? It's like the middle of the song, but it's there, it's there to allow for this sort of... It's underscoring. Yeah, it's a thank you. Well said. I mean, what, how, the way I describe this is one half hard rock concert and one half Grand Guignol theater experience. All of this is just one short year after Black Sabbath's eponymous debut. And so while Black Sabbath are still dressing like a bunch of hippies, they're making some heavy metal sounds, but Alice Cooper is paving the way for the visual experience. Is what we just saw, did that come from one year after Black Sabbath? Yeah, 1971. That's wow. pretty amazing, right? Yeah, Alice Cooper was definitely with it. And also, I'll point out, you know, we looked at the Hellbent for Leather era Judas Priest at the end of the 70s. The leather, mm -hmm. you know, all that leather look we were talking about, Alice Cooper was wearing it, and the band was wearing it in that video as well. Sabbath may have pioneered the sound of heavy metal, but it's Alice Cooper that is giving us much more a definitively new and exciting look for the heavy metal medium. And I, I will say for myself... I had the pleasure of seeing Alice Cooper live in New York City one Halloween night many years ago, and I will tell you, it was one hell of a live show. It was totally freaking heavy metal, and I loved it. Of course, Alice Cooper is not the only fabulous early 1970s American band that had one foot in proto-heavy metal and the other in elaborate theatrical display. This brings us back full circle to our other shock rockers extraordinaire. You wanted the best, you got the best. The hottest band in the land, KISS! John, 
we talked about this a little bit, but what did you come into this listening experience knowing about Kiss? I know this was a band that you had heard of because I talk about them like constantly. Um, but <laughs> this is not wrong. <laughs> but otherwise, what familiarity did you have with Kiss? I mean, I knew who Gene Simmons was as a character. Mm-hmm. I don't wouldn't say I know anything about him personally. I mean, I knew a couple of their songs, some of their bigger hits that I don't think come from the metal era at all. Yeah, that's probably true. And I know one of them is dressed up like a cat. (laughs) That's sort of my knowledge of Kiss. You're doing doing okay. You get a C- in history. Well, you know, that's a higher grade than I would have expected. (laughs) In the mid-1970s, Kiss were absolutely everywhere. They have sold over 100 million albums. Their image was featured on toys, on lunchboxes, on their own comic book, which included drips of their own blood in the ink. There's no way that could happen today. (laughs) No, probably not. But there there really was a time where Kiss were, in fact, the hottest band in the land. And, as I think I previously mentioned, Kiss were the very most favorite band of my own youth. Considerably later, I mean, we're talking about the late 1980s, so very different phase for the band and the country at large. I discovered them around the age of 12, and I just fell instantly in love. So I was this big Kiss fan, and they were actually the second live concert that I ever attended. And funnily enough, in small world news, the opening band, or one of the two opening bands for that show, was Winger. The aforementioned winger. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So me and Kip Winger, we're buddies. I think we're Facebook friends, too, actually. Anyway. Um, Kip listens to this podcast. Kip, you should come on sometime. We have so much in common. He, he's also, he was a trained ballet dancer, actually. Oh. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> Kip, and we could wait. maybe have an interesting conversation I feel like, Kip. Kip, you and me could be friends. <laughs> I really feel so. Additionally, the oldest thing of mine that I think I still own is actually a KISS concert t-shirt that I got in 1990 from the Hot in the Shade tour. It's basically completely transparent and I can't wear it outside, but I still wear it as like a jammy shirt. Thank you for that personal detail. Yeah. Would you like to see? No. Okay. Well, maybe maybe later. No. (laughs) So, a bit of background on KISS. KISS formed in New York City in 1973, influenced by the music of Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones, and the Beatles, as well as the visual imagery of bands like Alice Cooper, and particularly the proto-punk glam rock band, the New York Dolls. The core of the band has always been singer and rhythm guitarist Paul Stanley, who was born Stanley Eisen from New York, New York, singer and bassist Gene Simmons, born Chaim Witz in lovely Haifa, Israel. The other members of the classic KISS lineup included lead guitarist Ace Frehley, who was born Paul and born on the mean streets of the boogie-down Bronx, and drummer Peter Chris, originally Peter Criscula, from my favorite borough of them all, Brooklyn. Importantly, they developed their kabuki-style makeup look in elaborate stage show quite early on, eventually evolving into their four classic personas. Stanley, the star child, Simmons, the demon, Freely, the spaceman, and John's favorite, Peter Chris, the Catman. In my opinion, the first three Kiss albums are all extraordinary. I absolutely love Kiss, Hotter Than Hell, and Dress to Kill, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. But during this early part of their career, although they had increasingly massive live touring success, they actually suffered from pretty slow album sales, and they were trying to figure out what they could do to change their fortunes. It was not until Alive 
a live double album featuring songs from those first three albums, was released on September 10th, 1975, that Kiss finally had a hit single, the classic Rock and Roll All Night, which had originally been recorded on Dress to Kill, but is always heard on its Alive version if it comes on the radio, and their first hit album. Alive peaked at number nine on the U.S. charts. It was their first album to go gold. It was their first album to go platinum. And it has sold nine million copies to date. Not too shabby. What Alive did, thanks to the particular genius of the band and their producer, Eddie Kramer, was to really use a balance between an actual live recording of the band and an assortment of studio effects, including overdubs, amplified crowd noises, augmented audio effects, the sound of the cannons, things like that, that didn't transfer as well onto a live recording without modifications. But once they were augmented, they really give you the sense of not listening to a live album, but rather really being in the midst of a live concert at the arena in the middle of the crowd. And that's really a different thing, and it's why Alive is so very artistically successful on those terms. So what is it like to be at a live KISS concert? How and why is this music and this look so formatively important to the development of heavy metal? We're gonna take a look at one more short video, and we're gonna let the demon himself, Gene Simmons, show us how one shocks and awes a concert audience in true heavy metal fashion. John. Are you ready to watch and elegantly describe one more short video? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Gene Simmons looks angry. He looks sweaty. Well, yeah, sure, but he also looks angry. Ooh, demonic. He is holding a bass and just kind of staring. Oh, he lunged out of the shot. Okay, still just, oh, he lunged out of the shot again. Oh, is he playing? He's playing, isn't he? Okay, okay. What's going to happen? Uh, just kind of looking, oh, looking and playing. Oh, he stood up. Is he trying to smile? Does he not know how to smile? Is he trying, maybe, is he trying to wink? Uh, does he have something in his mouth? Oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. It kind of looks like he has something in his mouth. Is he bleeding? <gasps> is he bleeding? Oh my gosh. He looks, ooh. Oh! That was, oh God, oh! there's fire everywhere now. What the? <laughs> what in the hell? Where is the fire? Is one of them fire breathing? <laughs> He's breathing fire. He's spitting blood. That's kiss. That's Look at that tongue. See, this is exciting. That Where is did he theatrical. get that? Where did he get the idea to do that? Or? No, the actual blood, like practically speaking, right? in the middle of a concert. When does he just like... It's in his yeah, so that's why he's making those faces. He's holding a crap ton of blood in his mouth. As but he did. can't have been doing that the whole no, time. No, obviously like, there's some sort of transitional moment where perhaps a ten minute drum solo. <laughs> but there's the opportunity, so he's got the blood in his mouth, and then of course he's got the uh, this this particular video is edited to show both things because it's Gene that does both those things. Oh, but he is the, also the yeah, fire. Breather. He is the fire breather. So it's the blood spitter and the fire breathing demon. Wow. I mean, again, theatricality. We got blood, we got fire, we got demons. This is heavy metal. I mean, say what you will about the music, but we are definitely establishing the visual premise behind heavy metal with this set of imagery. Whoa. That was cool, right?
You're thinking about it. I mean, that's not my cup of tea, but it's definitely a lot more metal than their music. Yeah, all right. I think that's probably fair. <laughs> so Alive finally brought Kiss's live shock rock carnival and great music making together for the larger public, and the public responded with intense adoration and lots and lots of money. So once again, we can address this question. Is Kiss a heavy metal band? And once again, I have to admit that I'm a creature of my own biases in rearing. Yes, the heavy metal status of 1970s Kiss is a bit ambiguous. They were heavier than the Alice Cooper band for the most part, and certainly had a heavy metal image and stage show. However, whether or not one chooses to think of this era of Kiss as heavy metal, the 1980s version of KISS, when I was first introduced to them, starting with the brilliant and actually extremely heavy 1982 album, Creatures of the Night, were definitely a heavy metal band. No bones about it. And so to me, KISS are just always going to be a heavy metal band. It's just the era I grew up in. But you can go whichever way you choose. Suffice it to say, this visual influence is so central to the heavy metal ethos. Very briefly, a survey of the KISS story through to the present day. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, first Peter Criss and then Ace Frehley left the band. The classic 80s lineup, the one that I first became acquainted with, consisted of Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, drummer Eric Carr, rest in peace, and Bruce Kulick on lead guitar. Now, both of these players were much better, in my opinion, than Peter Criss and Ace Frehley, but... Again, it's what you know, it's who you're familiar with. KISS did eventually take their makeup off for quite a time, from the year 1983 until the original lineup reunion tour, which began in 1996. As we speak, KISS is currently touring on what is supposed to be their final tour, The End of the Road, which I actually caught live not long before COVID hit, and it was absolutely fabulous. It was a wonderful show. The current lineup still features both Stanley and Simmons. Now they have drummer Eric Singer, who you'll be pleased to note is wearing the Catman makeup. Are we pleased about that? I don't think there's really any reason to have the original makeup. But no. If, if it makes people happy. I will tell you that when Eric Carr first joined the band, they were still wearing makeup, and he had different makeup. He had Fox. He was the Fox. So he had Fox makeup. And then when they first replaced Ace Freely with Vinnie Vincent, he had this Egyptian-style Unk makeup. So back then, they were kind of going for new characters, but let's face it, they're sort of a classic rock band, nostalgia touring. So nowadays, they all four of them wear the traditional makeup. So Eric Singer on drums and guitarist Tommy Thayer as our new Spaceman. They actually haven't released an album of new material since 2012's solid but not spectacular Munster. And are really just now a kick-ass live act, sort of touring the world and making the most of this late phase of their careers. So there you have it. An intro to the visual side of the heavy metal experience, as well as an introduction to two of our shock rock greats, Alice Cooper and Kiss. Some may argue that these are proto-metal bands, more important as influences than as actual heavy metal artists themselves. But regardless of which side of that debate you land on, heavy metal as we know it would not be nearly so interesting or wonderful without the contributions of these two extraordinary bands. John, tell the people where they can find us. 
Now you can find us pretty much anywhere that you find podcasts. What? Is yeah, that true? I believe it is. What about Apple Podcasts? Yes. What about Google Podcasts? That's a thing? I don't know. I think so. What about Breaker? I don't know what any of these things are, but you can find us there. Anywhere on the internet, we're there for you. Mm-hmm. What if they want to talk to us, like make suggestions? Heavy Metal 101 Podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can actually also leave us a voice message now on Anchor. Wow. Yeah. yeah, modern technology. So if you want to... Please? Wanna... <laughs> Is it calling? I don't know how you do I don't this. know how it works. However There's you leave a thing. voicemail, please just, just rant at us. <laughs> Nothing would make Eric and I happier. We'll totally put it on the show, too. It'll be just awesome. <laughs> and now for a reoccurring segment, people complaining about our opinions. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Please do join us again for another spine-tingling episode of the Heavy Metal 101 podcast. Say bye to the nice people, John. Goodbye. <laughs>